Welcome to the 73rd episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I missed something really cool and brilliant this week in Switzerland. I mean, it's not like I just have the opportunity to pop out to Europe randomly for a couple days, but this is one of those times that I really wish that were a possibility. I'd I wish that were a possibility a lot, actually. Uh, But I'm talking about the Grand Basel, which is sort of a celebration of automotive beauty and uniqueness. Uh, This is the first time it's ever been held. So it's it's not like a a Concours d'Elegance or a a Goodwood Festival of Speed that have been around forever and serve uh, a relatively similar purpose. But rather than Goodwood, where uh, cars race up a fancy man's driveway, or Pebble Beach, where a bunch of rich people spend hours on end instructing teenagers where to clean the drool off their million-dollar cars, uh, Grand Basel is more like a pop-up automotive museum. Each car is given a frame, or sort of an elongated box, uh, with directed light on it and labeled with the year of production and the vehicle's make and model. No specs, no performance figures, nothing. And for the most part, you don't need them. You don't, you don't need to know just how much slower that original Land Rover Defender is than the Lamborghini Countach nearby. You know it is much, much slower, but you're not here for that. You're here to appreciate the spectacle of automotive design in its many shapes, sizes, forms, and functions. The, the cars don't drive around, so you don't get to hear their exhausts. And while some of the cars are for sale by owner, they're, they're not advertised widely, and there's no auction where you can go drive the price up on a car you honestly can't afford. Uh, it's strictly about the beauty of design rather than the rare or, or the rarity of the vehicle. And the participating cars are, create, are curated by a panel of judges. So it's, it's not like your local car meet where it's just a, a bunch of lowered Chevy Sparks and on Ford Focus STs. And, and here, uh, here's why I think that's brilliant. The auto shows are on the decline. Some people are blaming the internet and the, the lack of a need for a single large event where you have to compete with other automakers for the spotlight, while some claim that they just can't handle any more of my wrap-ups, so automakers are putting people out of their misery. In any case, the manufacturers that are responsible for about 40% of the vehicles on the road in Paris will not be taking part in this year's Paris Motor Show. Cars are being unveiled at events thrown by the manufacturer or at CES or at events catering more to the type of buyer that they're looking to attract rather than general automotive enthusiasts. But that doesn't mean we enthusiasts don't want to see some awesome cars. To the contrary, many of the new cars these days are pretty boring, so at least in my case, I'd rather go to a show with uh, interesting vehicles spanning the decades where I have the opportunity to catch something unique and cool rather than see how fast Kia's infotainment system is versus Chevy's. I mean, new cars can be interesting, but a lot of them simply aren't. Plus, as I keep mentioning, there are so, so many rich people out there and rich people love showing off how rich they are, and events like Grand Basel afford them the opportunity to show off their unique vehicles, and in some cases, sell them if they want to. Events like Radwood, where anyone with an 80s or 90s car can just show up and show off, are great, 
and and they'll keep uh, spreading in popularity so the rest of us can be proud of what we have. But events like Grand Basel can be a spectacle of the finest selections from the finest collections in the areas where they're held. And, and the premium experience at the event really belies the $45 ticket price. There will be future Grand Basels held not in Basel, <laughs> but also in Miami in February and in, Oho- in Hong Kong next May. And I can only hope this trend continues on and and be sort of jealous that I didn't think of this idea first. Now here's your top story. If you've been on the internet this week, or maybe listened to the news, or just caught the end of your Victorian village town criers update, you'll you'll know that a certain executive from a certain automotive company smoked a joint this week. And I'm sure you don't have to guess which one. And I'll, I'll spare you, dear listeners, the incriminations of somebody smoking weed, because let's be honest, it shouldn't be that big a deal. It's decriminalized in California and Washington and Colorado, and, it, and just like it should be everywhere else, despite the fact that it's still illegal officially nationwide. But while your company is on the ropes trying to break into a notoriously difficult industry, when you hold interviews with the New York Times where you complain about working so hard and not having time for your kids, where you, where you also offer to give up the keys to your office to anyone who thinks they can do better, And when you bitch about how fickle investors and the media are for short-selling your stock, just the last thing you should be doing as a CEO is going on a live web show and toking a big old joint while sipping on some whiskey. Yet that's exactly what Elon Musk did this week. The same week when the company's chief people guy decided he isn't returning to the company, and when the chief accountant decided to quit after less than a month on the job, the same week when Tesla bonds hit a record low and when the stock had officially lost a quarter of its value since Musk himself tweeted about taking the company private. And the same week that Musk engaged in an expletive-filled email battle with a BuzzFeed writer of all people, BuzzFeed, who the CEO called a fucking asshole after reaffirming his claims that one of the Thai cave rescue heroes was a child rapist while refusing to cite any actual facts or sources. Anymore, the, the line from Zoolander just doesn't do the news from Tesla any justice, but here goes. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! What you probably didn't hear this week was that Jerome Guillen, who's been with Tesla for eight years, was promoted to the head of automotive operations, where he will handle all production, program, and supply chain management. Leaving aside that that's almost certainly too much work for one man to master, it shows that the company is rewarding people for doing well and potentially taking work off Elon's plate. Um, Though Jerome will report directly to Musk rather than the board of directors. Um... Also overshadowed this week was the fact that the Model 3 outsold all passenger sedans in BMW's lineup combined. I mean, if you factor in the SUVs and crossovers, it's an entirely different story, but the Model 3 is actually crushing it with sales right now, and the production's humming right along. Plus, the near-production-ready second-generation Tesla Roadster popped up at the Grand Basel, looking amazing in white. 
Instead of those beacons of hope for a fledgling automotive company, we're hearing very little about the actual cars and very much about their problem-riddled CEO. In the absence of new hype to distract from the company's problems, Elon himself has become the distraction, despite the fact that the company doesn't need distractions since it's not doing super, super poorly right now. The morning after the weed smoking, Tesla's stop dr stock dropped 10%, recovering to close to uh, close down about 5% from the previous day. Recall that Elon's compensation is tied directly to the company reaching specific stock price goals, so he is in fact shooting himself in the wallet and then threw that wallet into his own ass with every misstep. And just like he can't, it just seems like he can't help himself. Uh, but for his sake and for the company's sake. I hope Elon either grows up or gets out, because having a glorified frat boy at the helm of a company is not a recipe for sustained success. After last week's news that the U.S. would no longer be getting the Chinese-made Ford Focus active due to tariffs implemented by the executive branch of our government, a, a certain executive hopped on his favorite communications platform to exclaim his joy. Trump tweeted, Ford has abruptly killed the plan to sell a Chinese-made small vehicle in the U.S. because of the prospect of higher U.S. tariffs. This is just the beginning. The car can now be built in the USA, and Ford will pay no tariffs. Um, well, no. Just because they're not bringing the Chinese-built car to the U.S. does not mean that the car will be built here. In fact, it just means that U.S. consumers get fewer choices, and Ford gets a punch in the gut by missing out on their planned sales of 50,000 vehicles per year. The same is true for Apple, whose products are made by Foxconn in China and will now cost U.S. consumers more because of the tariffs. Under virtually no situation is it more cost-effective to build a manufacturing plant in the U.S. and hire more expensive American workers to build the same vehicles that are built for a fraction of the price abroad. Such is the cost of being a wealthy culture that has transitioned to a service-based economy. Unfortunately, when the person in charge of trade is stuck with a third-grade understanding of economics, which he learned way back in the 1950s, it's only painfully obvious to consumers that isolationist trade policies don't work anymore. Or maybe he's just trying to publicly shame companies into building in America again. Something that Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau understands all too well, commenting on Trump's post, quote, "...these jobs are not coming back." If America manufactured everything it consumes, Americans would pay between 5 and 15 times more for most every product, end quote. But Trump never has to buy his own iPhones or Ford vehicles, so what does he care? As I've mentioned previously, my wife uh, has been considering a BMW i3 with the range extender because it's an excellent little car that's fun to drive and she can charge for free at work. Since I have the GTI, the paltry electric-only range of about 80 miles and the 30-kilowatt-hour battery isn't much of a concern, though it's been improved uh, to a whole 114 miles of range for 2017. Uh, while a German company called Lion Smart has been working on a new modular battery with a denser cell structure and has seen fit to demonstrate its potency in an old i3, replacing the now 33-kilowatt-hour battery, LionSmart has been able to fit a massive 100-kilowatt-hour battery in the same footprint, meaning the car goes from 114 miles of range to a huge 435 miles. 
The new battery pack is flexible in terms of the voltage, capacity, and physical dimensions it has to deal with in different cars, and each cell is fused individually, meaning if one fails, only that cell is disconnected, saving the rest of the battery's functionality. It also has a novel fire safety system that can focus on a single cell if it's damaged, reducing the likelihood of thermal runaway, uh, basically one cell catching all of the other cells on fire and uh, creating, creating one uh, uh, spicy BMW. Um, while this is just a proof of concept for now, it's really amazing how far battery technology has come in just five years, and how many companies that are just like Lion Smart, who I bet you've never heard of, are out there working to make it even better. Now, if Lion Smart just wanted to start selling their batteries to secondhand i3 owners, um, over in Wolfsburg, Volkswagen just cannot seem to shake off this whole Dieselgate thing. Sheesh, you'd think people would just let go of a decades-long ploy to fool governments and customers into buying cars that don't function as advertised and cause an elevated risk of cancer. But no, here comes a group of investors who claim to have lost a ton of money as a result of the scandal because they didn't learn about it before regulators spread the word. Almost 1,700 individuals or individual claims are part of this suit that seeks $10.7 billion in compensation. Shares dropped 37% in value within a couple of days of the EPA's reports on uh, VW diesel defeat devices, which investors say could have been mitigated if the company had gotten out ahead of it. Volkswagen still claims none of the leadership knew about the devices and therefore couldn't have warned investors and definitely weren't defrauding regulators from the highest level, which, yeah, sure, maybe... Um, the trial for the investor suit is set to begin Monday in Germany and could inform rulings on many other pending lawsuits, but the Wall Street Journal warns that uh, or shareholders might not see the outcome they want because German courts rarely grant such large judgments for civil litigation damages. I suppose we'll see soon enough, but with electric vehicle development now a major priority, Volkswagen will be hoping to part with as little of their R&D money as possible. Over at Toyota, the company has issued a recall for more than a million Prius and CHR crossovers because their engine wiring could lead to a fire, which according to a study done by me just now indicates is 100% undesirable. Uh, no injuries have been reported, and just one incident occurred this February, but apparently a portion of the wiring harness connected to the vehicle's hybrid power control unit could contact the cover of the unit and wear out, causing an electrical short, and then heat, and then maybe fire. Basically, a lot has to go wrong, but it could happen. Most of the recalled cars are in Japan, but there are about 200,000 on the road here, so look out. Over at Ford, they are living up to their rich heritage of manufacturing excellence by messing up the one thing that is really going right for them right now, their trucks. Specifically, almost 2 million Ford F-150s have been recalled because the seatbelts have caused 17 documented fires. How, you ask, can a seatbelt cause a fire? Well, the seatbelt pretensioners, which work to restrain passengers from the, in the event of a crash, have a tendency to fire off sparks into the insulation inside the B-pillar of the vehicle, which you can probably guess how the rest of that story goes. Um, the crazy thing is that these, these fires have been happening for three years, and the company and Transport Canada and the NHTSA have all been investigating the cause, which was only recently discovered. Ford's solution? Eh, just slap some heat-resistant tape on it. So if you have a recalled truck, go get you some tape. 
Longtime listeners will also know that Ford has recalled my wife's Ford Fusion Energy three times since she purchased it almost two years ago. Well, it's happened again, and while I can't surprise her with the news since a coworker broke the story to her earlier this week, we can get a hot take on what it's like to own a vehicle so incredibly poorly designed that the company has to keep asking you to bring it back to get it fixed. Hi, honey. Hi. <clears throat> so I take it you know why I'm here. Is there another one? Yes. <laughs> no, you know about this one. Oh. Yeah. So... Our house is a pretty nice place, right? Yeah. yeah. And you would say that um, charging your car is also important to be able to get to and from work. I'll go ahead and agree with you. Okay. But in order to get to and from work, burning down the house is probably a high price to pay for being able to do so on electric-only power. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. So... You know that your car's been recalled because the charging cable has a tendency to overheat outlets, mm. causing fires to happen. Yeah, burning. Though it's apparently only happened once. Oh, it has happened. Yes. I didn't know it had happened. <laughs> it hasn't apparently caused any injuries, but, you know, a house can burn down without any injuries. So, yeah. you know, that's a little sketchy. Um, 50,000 of them have been recalled, and it's uh. not just... The Fusion, but it's the C-Max and the Focus Electric as well. It's fewer than I thought. I guess I don't know how many they made. Yeah. I mean, it, not all the cars, I guess, probably came with that specific charging cable mm. that yours has. Mm -hmm. But you still have, was it two out ongoing recalls that no, you haven't? No, it didn't say that the uh, parking one was actually one listed okay. online. So that one could not be, my, I don't know, but it wasn't listed <laughs> on the list. Okay, so you don't know whether or not your brakes may fail, then requiring you to use your parking brake every time you yeah, stop Yeah, that the one car. wasn't on there. No. Okay, good. So only one outstanding recall in, in addition, addition yeah. to the charging cable. Right. What's your general sentiment towards uh, Ford and their engineering <laughs> excellence <laughs> at this current time? Uh... It's not surprising, I guess. Like, I'm not... Su if if this was, like, Honda, I'd be surprised. But this is why it was cheaper. True. So, would you consider getting another Ford, factoring in that, the, I mean, you know from listening to the show that they're not going to have any cars anymore? Yeah. <laughs> so, in the, in the theoretical world where there were cars. The thing is, is that when I look for cars again, I, I just land on the Fusion Energy because it's the best car for the money and what I wanted. So, I don't regret buying that car. Um, they are apparently stopping making the car that I bought. So, right. I... They are. They will no longer be serving what I want, so I would probably have to buy something else in another five years or something. Well, and as more and more recalls happen, you sort of get an understanding for why exactly it is, for the cost, the optimal vehicle, because the cost reflects the engineering that went into the car. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you. So there you have it. Hot take, no regrets, somehow. 
Um, on the subject of car reliability, uh, what car has released their reliability survey this week studying 159 models from 31 automotive brands across 18,000 car owners of vehicles up to four years old? Uh, the ratings were calculated using feedback from owners, factoring in how much a problem cost to repair and how long the car was off the road to get fixed. The survey found that the Suzuki SX4 S-Cross and Toyota Yaris were clear winners, with the first-generation Nissan Leaf coming in at third, followed by the Toyota RAV4 and BMW 3 Series. At the other end of the spectrum were the Ford Edge, Range Rover, and Tesla Model S, which finished last with a score of just 50.9%, fully 16.4% lower than the Range Rover. Uh, Tesla responded to the survey saying the findings were at odds with their own satisfaction surveys, but of course, I'm sure the owners of the Model S who were surveyed by what car were quite at odds with the company themselves, so interpret that however you want. Um, since restoring classic cars has become such an en vogue trend, manufacturers are starting to hop on board in various ways. Jaguar and Land Rover both make restored versions of their old vehicles, but they're now going to be helping out owners who want to do the work themselves by offering a new vintage-styled infotainment system to work in older cars. In addition to the old look and compatibility with uh, Land Rovers and Jaguars, the new units will support digital radio, Bluetooth, and traditional radio signals. There's a minimalist 3.5-inch touchscreen between old rotary knobs, and various dealers will even be able to fit this product in themselves. It will, however, cost you 1,200 pounds per radio, which is pretty steep, considering you can buy an old XJR for about $900 on Craigslist. Uh, but when a tacky Kenwood system just won't do, I guess now you have another option. Uh, while Amazon's Echo and Google Home have invaded our living spaces, digital assistants haven't really yet been baked into our cars, but that's set to change with upcoming BMW models. Uh, but instead of using the more tried and true systems like Alexa, the Bavarians are creating their own AI technology and calling it, uh, arrogantly, Intelligent Personal Assistant which uh, uses an always-on technology like Alexa to listen for certain prompts. Then the assistant will be able to control vehicle settings, navigation, entertainment, which is nice uh, in the age of reducing buttons to favor large touchscreens with impossibly deep menus. Um, I've used Google a couple of times while driving uh, using Android Auto in my car, and it works pretty well, but slowly. I definitely slower than pressing a button since my dash is pretty well laid out. Plus, you feel like a bit of a dork talking to your car, but I guess people like talking to their houses, so this probably isn't that much different. How this will work with your own version of Carpool Karaoke, though, remains to be determined. Uh, very rarely in the course of driving do we confront the fact that we are uh, actually piloting heavy steel death machines capable of nearly instantly taking lives when they are mishandled, but in some cities that acknowledgement is uh, more frequent than others. According to the Houston Chronicle this week, Houston is actually the deadliest city in the country for driving, with an average of 11 fatal crashes per week with 12 deaths. Um, they see around 640 people die every year on Houston roads, with a further almost 3,000 serious injuries. 
Speculation on why Houston got so bad is rampant from the fact that cops are handing out 41% fewer speeding tickets to cars now than they were five years ago, to the fact that road deaths have become so common that people just ignore them when they're on the news and move on with their lives. Um, based on the comments from the story's feature on Jalopnik, it sounded like, and I know this is going to sound crazy coming from me, but traffic enforcement really needs to be stepped up because people are driving like batshit insane morons. But again, this is the comment section of Jalopnik, so because they aren't driving old Mercedes wagons or Miatas, they're inherently morons. Uh, in any case, if you're one of those people who think that you'll never feel more alive than when you might die, well, head down to Houston, because apparently that's every damn day on the roads down there. Uh, a few months back, I mentioned the proposed Robo Race series, which uh, would be a supporting race at Formula E events, where dog-bone-shaped autonomous vehicles would race each other around a track in a fascinating spectacle of software trying to beat software while equipped with the same hardware. You may also recall that I may have called this one of the dumbest ideas ever in the history of automotive racing. Um, just wait, because it gets dumber still, uh, because the autonomous technology for these cars is not yet up to scratch. The first season of Robo Race will feature decidedly non-robotic humans driving the cars in sort of a tag-team partnership with the car, though it's not exactly clear how that really is going to work. Uh, the, of course, the cars that look like dog bones have no spots for human drivers, so that's going to take some revisiting. So I guess it's just going to be like Formula E, but with computers fighting humans for control of the electric race cars, which actually that sounds like it would be more fun, but regardless, I think this is still a dumb idea, and nobody wants to watch robots race themselves. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Uh, now for some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. You don't like it unless brand new. you might see me in my well with my, my The biggest new car this week was undoubtedly the Mercedes-Benz EQC, which is the company's first production all-electric vehicle and the one meant to take the fight to Tesla's Model X crossover. However, the two cars vary rather significantly. First in the looks department, the Model X looks like a droopy egg splatted on the ground and slapped with a slanted or a sort of stunted duckbill in front, which comes together to resemble less the future and more of a 1997 Dodge Caravan, and, and not even the Grand Caravan. Uh, the EQC, on the other hand, looks like a very stylish and handsome uh, SUV, much like the current GLC gasoline-powered vehicle, uh, with more classical proportions, smoothed out a little bit to aid in aerodynamics. There's also a front grille on this vehicle, which is basically functionless, but Mercedes gets it. Said designer Robert Lesnick, the grille is important because otherwise the car would be faceless. It doesn't matter if there needs to be an air intake or not. We believe that every EQ car needs a certain shape in the front, end quote. Yes, Bobby, good man. Can you imagine a Mercedes without a big black grille and a shiny silver three-pointed star on it? No, and you won't have to. While, while future EQ models may be a little more adventurous in design, the EQC is conservative by design, hoping not to shock buyers with how different an EV can look. It also doesn't have a front trunk or frunk because the underhood area houses motor components, which is sort of a missed opportunity, but probably not a deal breaker for most people. 
Inside, the car features a massive screen running half the length of the dash, and it looks sleek inside. Plenty of piano black and touchscreen areas for you and your dirty friends to leave your grubby little fingerprints on. But if they were hoping not to shock buyers with how, uh, how different the outside looks, it's on the inside that the differences really start to take, take shape. Performance-wise, though, here we get into some trouble. The range of the Model X is rated at 249 miles in its least expensive form. All Mercedes needed to do was match that, yet here we are with EQC's range of being, quote, up to 200 miles, which doesn't even compete with the Chevy Bolt. Granted, the EQC has 400 horsepower and 564 torques, which is a lot, and it'll do 0 to 60 in 4.9 seconds, which isn't insanity mode fast, but it's still quite quick. Uh, despite the press release stating that this figure multiple times is up to 200 miles, Mercedes has since claimed that it's incorrect and that the U.S. mileage figure will be released closer to the production of the actual car, suggesting that the range could be anywhere from 222 to 280 miles, but they're still barely reaching Tesla territory there. More reason for Elon to be smug, I guess, but not for long considering that this is just the first of 10 all-electric or hybrid cars to come from Mercedes over the next four years. It is going to be a very interesting time here, folks. Um, and now, if there's if there's one automotive brand that everyone associates with high fashion, it's undoubtedly Kia. Uh, oh, um, uh, no, no, wait, I'm I'm sorry, I meant to see. It's definitely not not Kia. Um, nevertheless, the Korean company used the occasion of the New York Fashion Week to debut its new production Telluride SUV which is a gigantic eight-passenger crossover, largely similar to the concept we saw a couple of years ago already. Um, unfortunately, the production version, which showed up covered in some theoretical aftermarket parts like skid plates, ladders, spare tires, and roof-mounted luggage racks, is not quite as attractive as a concept, with the front bumper and headlights deciding, looking decidedly more derpy than the slick, smooth concept. Um, the details are scarce, but it'll probably get the Sorento's V6 and be perfectly capable people hauler. Whether it will rival Subaru Ascent's 19 cup holders, though, we will have to wait and see until we get the final press release. I mean, we can only hope. Fingers crossed, you guys. Um, if you're shopping for an entry-level luxury sedan, chances are you're looking at the BMW 1 or 3 Series, uh, Mercedes CLA or C-Class, Audi A3 or A4, or maybe the Infiniti Q50 or Lexus IS, and did you remember that Acura makes an entry-level luxury sedan? It's called the ILX, and since its inception, it has been a fancy, expensive Civic, which has been painfully obvious to all buyers who probably ended up buying something else or just paid less for a Civic EX and basically got the same car. Um, it suffered greatly from Acura's failed experiment with beaking every one of its cars to death, and I think I can count on one hand the number of times I've actually seen this car in the wild. Now, though, for 2019, the car has been updated, and what a difference a model year makes. Gone is the beak. Gone is the bland styling and that barely differentiated it from its pedestrian cousin, and in are some swoopy lines and sleek head and taillights and sharp diamond-shaped pentagon grille. It, it keeps the old Civic Si's non-turbo 2.4-liter engine that makes a pretty healthy 200 horsepower and has made it to an 8-speed dual-clutch automatic gearbox uh, powering the front wheels. 
So it's not likely to be giving the BMW 340i any real competition, but around $30,000, they're fairly different vehicles for fairly different buyers. It's just unfortunate that this has come at a time of unparalleled unpopularity for sedans. Acura, we really needed to get this right like 10 years ago. Um, this week, Volvo took the cover off a new concept called the 360C, which is an all-electric, fully autonomous vehicle on an all-new platform that can basically be anything you want it to be inside. Sleeping pod, high-stakes gambling den, sex dungeon, whatever. The platform is apparently super flexible inside because it doesn't need the same three-box format as most contemporary vehicles because the motors and battery are all in the floor. Thus, it's pretty futuristic looking, but being a Volvo, of course, it puts safety first. So to that point, it has a bunch of lights and sounds that don't make it look like a Japanese Bosuzoku car, but do indicate to pedestrians and other drivers what the car is going to do at a given moment. Like if you arrive at a stop sign at the same time as a 360C, it'll have lights and sounds that signify, I'm stopped here to let you go, or screw you, buddy, I'm late for a dinner of delicious Swedish meatballs. Um, Volvo's hoping to have a fully autonomous car in the market in just three years, so this may be our first look at what that car might resemble, but that's an awfully ambitious plan. Um, it wouldn't be another week around here if a company hadn't come along and decided to make a classic or take a classic car and fix it up with modern touches and then resell it for exponentially more than the original cost. Uh, but this week we have an Italian special. Uh, basically, an Italian guy named Eugenio Amos has taken a Lancia Delta Integrale, hammered out the wide-body fender flares to be even wider, added some carbon fiber, fiddled with the engine and interior, and renamed it the Automobili Amos Delta Futurista and slapped a $350,000 price tag on it. But let me tell you, this car is fantastically gorgeous. Instead of tacky carbon fiber for weight savings, this is tasteful touches done in such a way that complement the car's original look, but also manages to shave off 200 pounds of weight. The interior is plush and gorgeous and stays true to the original design, but makes some simplistic, modern additions that apparently were inspired by the Group B Delta S4 Stradale, including a custom steering wheel and seats. Under the hood, the engine has been revisited with a new intake and cooling systems, uh, the transmission is being re reinforced and the differential rebuilt, but performance fig figures were withheld because Genio said it's not about the numbers, but the feeling. Uh, and, and since this guy owns a number of other fast Italian cars, <laughs> I bet you that feeling you get from the Delta Futurista is pretty damn good. <laughs> and, and for $350,000, it really, really should be. Uh, earlier in the week, Lexus teased the release of a fourth flagship vehicle, which uh, many speculated would be a new sporty crossover coupe type thing, which is the current rage highlighted by the new Audi SQ8. But we were all wrong because it's actually a boat. Uh, the LY650, to be exact, is a 65-foot-long yacht in the style of the Lexus Sport Yacht concept from several months ago. Uh, the response was apparently so strong that Lexus decided to partner with Marquis Larson Boat Group out of Madison, Wisconsin, to build the gigantic, luxurious, rich people toys. Um, they feature three staterooms, whatever those are, and sleep, sleep, uh, sleep six people. 
Ah, uh, jeez. Uh, it does look indeed like a very nice place to be, but to me, as a landlocked Midwesterner who remains decidedly out of the first percentile in income, the LY650 is little more than a reminder that there are so, so many freaking rich people out there these days. But I can totally understand why companies like Lexus, Porsche, Mercedes, Bugatti, and Aston Martin are all getting in on the boating scene. Because they have such excellent brand recognition among the wealthy types, why not leverage that to sell some more shit? Back in 2014, Harley-Davidson reintroduced Indian motorcycles to the world with the Chieftain and Scout, which were uh, both beautiful high-end bikes that were bedecked in chrome and metal flake paint and just looked gorgeous, though I think I've yet to see a single one on the road in the four years since. Uh, for 2019, though, the Chieftain is getting a mild refresh that brings a slightly new look and a bunch of new tech. In the visual department, the full front fairing is a bit sharper and has some LEDs, and the rear saddlebags and seat have been restyled for both looks and comfort. Between your legs, the V-twin motor now comes with cylinder deactivation, which stops firing the rear cylinder, making it more comfortable on hot days and more efficient, too. The bike also has three riding modes, Tour, Standard, or Smart, which I guess firms up the suspension and play with the throttle response. I don't know. Uh, the stereo is also now uh, better in terms of sound quality and louder, so everyone you fly past can instantly identify that, yes, that is Ted Nugent you're listening to. Um, all of this luxury, though, comes at a cost, and a not insignificant cost. The 2019 Chieftain begins at $22,000, but will run you up to $26K for the limited model. That is a very large amount of money for something with just two wheels. Uh, I have a deep dive segment coming up soon on motorcycling that will touch on this a bit more, but one really has to wonder how many buyers there are out there for a $26,000 bike. Uh, finally this week, a call to action. Uh, I found myself being kind of an asshole this week. Uh, I was driving home from work and in stop-and-go traffic on the highway past a rattle-can-painted flat-black Chevy Silverado on airbags hovering just a couple of inches above the highway with uh, surprisingly stock wheels and tires tucked well up into the fenders and a silly little ducktail spoiler on the tailgate at the end of a totally covered bed. My first reaction was something along the lines of, wow, that's a stupid-looking truck, because who would take a utilitarian pickup and completely negate all of its ability by slamming it and rendering the bed essentially functionless? And then he passed me, and I looked at the driver, and it's just, it's just some dude puffing on a cigarette, driving along, enjoying the day in his truck. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really shitty of me to be judging this dude in such a way because he's just doing his thing, and his thing is liking slammed pickups. He probably loves the way it looks and rides, and when he parks it, he looks back it over his shoulder with pride because he has his truck the way he wants it, or at least close to it. I mean, we all aspire to some things, right? It's essentially no different than a Prius driver seeing me fly by them and thinking, wow, that's a stupid car burning through all that gas to get to the next stoplight only a car's length ahead of me while I earn 65 miles per gallon and I'm part of the solution and not the problem. Uh, I drive my car because... At least right now, hot hatches are my thing. And I love my GTI, and I and that guy loves his truck, and so who am I to call it stupid? I'm not calling for some sort of total PC group love circle jerk type thing here, but I think my initial reaction was pretty telling. I, I try not to be shitty to other drivers, but I still think that way sometimes. I guess 
what I'm getting at is that we should probably all have some self-improvement to work on, so let's get out there and try to do that this week, for the sake of yourself and for others. With that, thank you for listening. Thanks to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. I was saddened this week by the death of Burt Reynolds uh, because he and his movies and cars were so closely linked throughout his career. And in celebration of someone who just took the fun rolls and, and really tried to live life to its fullest, I'll leave you this week with a Pontiac Trans Am Firebird. Here, friends, is your moment of zen. <laughs>